0: you also have to be your own advocate and make sure you take care of your health as much as possible. Hey,
1: oh my gosh, this is take two of another podcast recording today. Are you pumped?
2: Yes, I am. This is the first um, podcast we're going to be doing with somebody that neither of us have met yet
1: oh my gosh i am so excited for this i'm i'm really excited so um do you want to just go ahead and kind of introduce our guests for today or um just um talk about our guests for today
2: yeah just one second i'm just sending our guests the link
1: to join i hope you guys are doing super well at least if you're um, in california i don't know the weather up in canada but if you're in california um we're kind of going through a little bit of heat wave right now and it's extremely hot so please stay hydrated um if you can't access water and the only thing you have is watermelon eat that Um, i mean stay hydrated stay healthy hydration Um,
2: hydration it's hydration
1: across the nation
2: all right so
1: (laughs) but yeah
2: episode is going to be with this guy named bruce And he is a comedian and he also has long COVID. Um, I'm not sure how long he's had COVID, but so for those of you who aren't aware of long COVID, long COVID is when you acquire COVID, you go the two weeks and then after those weeks and you still experience symptoms and they go on and on and on and they don't leave you alone. Um, This is becoming a rather common thing. um, COVID are kind of fitting into the chronic illness community now, um, which is is not a fun thing. So if you're one of those, you know, tough people that's like, oh, I got, I, I'm, I'm young and all cool and all this, I'll get COVID, I won't die. Well, yeah, maybe you won't die, but maybe you'll be stuck with symptoms for years, or who knows very interesting to talk to Bruce about this when he joins. Oh, and yeah. he's here. Hello. Here's Bruce. Hi. Hi. There. Hi. You can How hear me, Colin?
0: Yeah, we can yes. hear you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for having me here. I heard you talking about COVID, long haulers, and everything else like that. And uh, I got the t-shirt for that, let me tell you. Uh, well, <laughs> Where I'm coming from with that, whenever you'd like, or however you'd like to, you know, go forward with the recording. You just tell me.
2: Yeah. So our our recordings are generally pretty casual. We ask questions, and we can go all over the place. Sometimes we go way off topic. But um, first thing we usually ask our guests is to tell us a bit about yourself. I know you are also into comedy too, so um, you can talk a bit about that and a bit about the COVID. And- Sure. Yeah, just introduce yourself.
0: And life in general. I, uh, absolutely. Uh, yes. Well, my name is Bruce Lipsky. I actually I was born and raised in New York City, and I live on Long Island right now. I worked in corporate America for 25 years uh, prior to getting into comedy. I was one of those loyal employees where, you know, um, on my 25th anniversary, I thought I was getting my, my clock, my grandfather clock, and instead I got my clock cleaned. Basically, okay. and I eliminated my, eliminated my department, which is okay. I mean, I was I was 50 years old at the time. I was still too young to retire. So I worked somewhere else for several years mm-hmm. on a three-year contract. And after that ended, I was seriously injured in an automobile accident, a uh, bad spinal injury. Uh, but I vowed that if I can stand up, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. So uh, I went through aggressive uh, rehab and uh, several years later, Comedy, uh, and it's been a, been a great ride. Um, I've always been at the comedy. Uh, you know, my father was one of those guys who uh, used to tell uh, sarcastic jokes. And uh, I guess it kind of resonated over the course of time with me. <laughs> and that's how I <saw> got <laughs> into comedy. Also, I used to go to uh, Dangerfield. Uh, in New York City, the premier club at the time. Rodney Dangerfield was the hottest comedian in New York City, and I loved his his style of humor. And I try to emulate that a little bit in my in my style of comedy, uh, but it's uh, it's been fabulous. Uh, now that I'm 65 years old, I have a different perspective on things as opposed to some of the younger comedians out there. So, you know, when I get on stage, sometimes I say, what's grandpa doing on stage, you know? But at the same point, uh, <laughs> It doesn't always resonate that way. As I say, you you millennials have your own way of doing things. I labeled myself as a perennial. And we have our own way of doing things as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. so I like to laugh, and a lot of my comedy uh, uh, resonates around family, just uh, wife, child, in-laws, outlaws, my personal experience in life in general. You know, stupid things that happen to me, or things that I observe. And of course, past experiences, and just in general, growing up, you know, it could be my friends, it could be family, as I said, or it just could be the next door neighbor, or just something stupid. As I, I I'm driving somewhere and I see something, I just totally out of whack. You know, the interesting thing with comedy is that, um, as when I became a stand-up comedian, the hardest thing is to relate how I feel about a subject and t- try and make it funny so you can relate to it and hopefully laugh. And that was the biggest difference because, you know, you probably go out with your friends on a Friday night or whatever night you go to dinner, and you could be laughing hysterically for three hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a lot different when I get on stage and try and convince you that, hey, I'm funny, based on some of my experiences. But but oftentimes, the experiences I had, most likely somewhere along the line you've had them, whether it's job-related, whether it's family-related, whether it's relationship-related, you know, so that, that was, again... Uh, Some people may shake their head and say, "You know, that happened to me too. Maybe in a different different angle, but it's still at the end of the day, it's comedy." And you've experienced a lot of these things, so it's I said, it's been a fun ride, and I hope to continue it. And uh, we started talking earlier about uh, COVID. Uh, Last year, uh, around March, I got uh, I tested positive with the COVID virus. My son had been sick about two weeks beforehand. uh, But, he, you know, he's 25 years old at the time, so he sort of shook it off pretty well. But I woke up one day not feeling so well, and I hadn't had a fever in probably 40 years. I couldn't remember the last time I had a fever. And so I went online to my medical coverage, and they said, if your fever was above 100.4, you should go into the clinic and get tested. And I was right at the 100.4, not 104, but 100.4. So I drove to the clinic and they met me in one of those hazmat suits and they took the test. But that was back in March of last year where kind of the disease was really new and they really didn't know how to handle it. They told me three to five day turnaround on is getting the results. That turned into 10 days. But between the three, for three days or so, I was getting sicker and sicker. Symptoms, you know. Headache, dizzy, lightheaded, nauseous, the fever, aches and pains, um, tracheal constriction, cough. So I live in a very small town in Long Island um, called Floral Park. And uh, it's almost like Mayberry RFD, if you ever watch the Andy Griffith show.
2: Mm -hmm. It's
0: one of those small towns where everybody seems to know each other.
2: Mm -hmm. And one of
0: my best friends in town is, uh, is the main physician. And so I called him up. It was a Thursday. I remember this. And I said to him, I said, Doc, I don't feel so good. I was tested recently for the virus, but I haven't got the results back it's been several days. I'm wondering if I'm going to get the results back. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. My office is closed right now, but I'm going to walk over. I'm going to drop a hazmat suit off on your front porch. And then I'm going to go back, dress up in the hazmat suit and open my office. And you walk through town. Come to my office and I'll do some testing on you. So imagine this, I'm walking through town in a hazmat suit where everybody knows you. It was like, you know, it was Chernobyl. I think it was a nuclear fallout over here. People were running on the other side of the street wondering who this crazy guy was. Uh, But thankfully, when I got to his office, which wasn't too far away, he did all the diagnostic tests, you know, he tested my lungs, he tested my oxygen. Thankfully, those were good. That was my saving grace. But based on the other symptoms, he said, I think you have COVID. So I'm going to start treating you as if you had COVID. So I went through the medical protocol, which is the standard medicines that you've probably heard about, plus 200,000 units of vitamin D. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: He was working with the local pharmacist with that. And the pharmacist said, this is one of the saving graces. If we can get the by, oftentimes that helps people who have respiratory issues with COVID. Thankfully, my respiratory issues were minimal, but he said this could help you on, on as far as you know, as far as healing better. But of course, over the last next few days, I wasn't doing much better. I just felt awful. I lost a lot of weight. I had no appetite, and uh, I came to a crossroads. Uh, my doctor said, you know, at this point now we have to make. At that point, they were saying the antimalarial drug, chloroquine was the way to go as far as helping people, you know, get through this disease. But there were a lot of side effects that they were worried about. Because typically when you take that pill, whatever the end on a day. When I was when I was sick, they had me take four the first day. And then two, two, and two, go through the whole protocol. And I remember the pharmacist delivered the pills on a Saturday morning. And my doctor, I had some discussions with him, and I said, do I really need this? And he says, "I want you to look at this recording from Italy." And they showed all these people, unfortunately, passing away from COVID. And I said to him, "What's my best chance here?" He says, "Taking the pill." But I didn't have the guts to take it that Saturday. I, I, I was really too scared. Is the cure worse than the problem? And, but I saw it as I say. I had it. next morning. I said, "You know, I got to do this." Because again, this is my best opportunity to getting better. I'll take it, and I took it. but I cannot, I can't guarantee that that helped me or not. But mm-hmm. over the course of several weeks, I started feeling better. You know? But better was a new normal, not, not yeah. my old. You know, and fast forward 15 months almost. I still am what they consider the long hauler. I still have symptoms. I have headaches, nausea, chills. I get feelings of flushness. I get tracheal constriction. Thankfully, through this whole course, um, my energy levels were pretty good. My background is in exercise and fitness. Mm-hmm. And I've always got myself in pretty good shape. I had one of those unique jobs when I worked in corporate America. I ran their fitness programs in the centers. So i designed them, manage them, and staff them and I had them all over the country. This was for a Fortune 500 company. So I was in the fitness industry. I kind of knew some of the exercises that I should probably be doing for myself. I self-prescribed breathing exercises, and I started pushing myself because this disease, and I'm sure you're very well aware, Mm -hmm. wants you basically to lay in bed, crawl up into a ball, and give up. And I couldn't do that. But the temptation was there because you just didn't feel good. I would never experienced anything like this. And my son and my wife, thankfully, they're such great supporters, they pushed me slow steps, he said, dad, you got to get out of the bedroom. But we were under quarantine. I was afraid of infecting anybody else. He said, no, you got to get out. I remember it must've been maybe four weeks or five weeks before I even had dinner with my wife. because she was, you know, it's one of those things she was passing food underneath the door in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really leave the bedroom. Uh, So it was frustrating for her, it was frustrating for me, but eventually He said, you got to get out. So I used to take, I used to walk the dog with my son. When I say walk the dog, I used to do three to five miles a day walking the dog. We're talking three blocks, if that much. And slowly over the course of time, I started forcing myself a little bit more. I have a home gym in my house. So down in my basement, I have a treadmill. And I got on the treadmill. I was taking baby steps, but I built it up to a half an hour again. And so obviously I, I, I went from there just to make sure I had to keep my body moving because if I didn't keep my body moving. Not only on the physical side was I failing, but on the mental side.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what comedy really helped me out a lot. As I mentioned, I haven't been in comedy that long. Probably, I took a course maybe four years ago, but for the first year, I didn't do anything for, fam- for family reasons. So probably almost three years into comedy now. I took a wonderful course called Stand Up University out in Long Island, taught by three professionals in the field. It was fabulous. I had never been on stage before, and so I went through that whole process, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But, again, going with the disease itself, as I said, there's two components. One is the physical side of meaning being sick and having the virus in you, but the mental aspect, which can can play havoc on you. Mm -hmm. And And... also, I was having issues with memory, or brain fog a little bit. Thankfully, that's been pretty good. But just I was so frustrated, and I'll never forget this. I felt so terrible. Um, the, the pharmacist we were working with, and I've done a lot of research into COVID, and he was really helping me with my, my protocol as far as you know getting better. And one of the things he was saying, there's a I can't tell you what it is. There's a component or a chemical in eggs. That's what he said was very good in helping the lungs stay strong. I can't tell you what that is, but I went along with him. I'm not really an egg eater, but I started eating a lot more eggs. That explains so much. Mm -hmm. I had
2: COVID too, but I didn't have, well, I I had, mine's a bit of a complicated story, but I didn't have a lot of trouble, like my doctors weren't worried about my breathing, but I Mm -hmm. eat I was eating so many eggs at that period of time, (laughs) so that kind of explains that for me. Yeah, the
0: craving (laughs) or whatever it was. I'm not really an egg eater, and but I said, hey, at this point, they're they're basically rolling the dice and saying, hey, we'll try this, we'll try that. Whoever thought of taking 200,000 units of vitamin D? Yeah. That's a lot of vitamin. I was taking 10,000 a day normally. Mm-hmm. Maybe that helped me a little bit. I don't know. So anyway, long story short, I was I, my wife was making me eggs, and they, you know, they, were, they were delicious. And one day, she didn't make me the eggs, but she went to the local bagel place and bought eggs there, and brought them upstairs and, and handed them to me. And for some reason, my motor neurons weren't operating right that day. I yelled at her. I was I was not me. The disease kind of took over me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she's looking at me with this long face, the chin hitting the ground, how she went out of her way to buy these things. You know, for me, really, I mean, she was a trooper. And now I've, whatever it was, and I'm not that type of person. I'm like one of the most easygoing guys. I never yell or scream, right? But this thing, some switch flipped with me. And I want to say it's COVID related. Thankfully, that, that, that switch has been shut down. It hasn't resurfaced. But I felt so terrible. And I, I saw her, I saw her pain because she was suffering so much from COVID, not because she was sick, because now she thought sort of had to take over the response, which included walking the dog, just the general things that, like, you know, we were a partnership, we're married almost 30 years. And here, here I, feel, I felt I failed her on the emotional side. So again, this is such a disease where it affects so many people, the people who didn't get the disease how they're being affected by it. And uh, we try to make laughter out of this. And and we have a good relationship. I try and keep humor into the relationship. And I've actually was able to uh, put together a couple of sets on COVID in comedy, because there's nothing funny about COVID obviously. But if you have your own experiences, I remember um, sitting in a rocking chair upstairs in my house with a blanket over me with the chills and it's so weird with this disease, I can almost predict at four o'clock, I'm gonna get the chills. Don't ask me why, but four o'clock, was like, again, it's putting that light switch on chills. In the morning, I can predict headaches and bad nausea. don't even know why. So anyway, I'm sitting in this rocking chair. It's nighttime, I have a light on, I feel quiet for myself. I have a blanket draped over me. I haven't showered, I haven't really washed anything. The only showering I do is put brew cologne on. My hair was all a mess. And I'm sitting here rocking and my wife is walking the dog. She's coming back to the house and uh, she looks up and she sees me rocking it. and she sends me a text. She says, Bruce, you look like Norman Bates's mother from the movie Psycho. And it was like, thanks for the encouragement, darling. You know, but I tried keeping the humor into this because if you didn't have humor, it would have been difficult to get through this process. And I remember one other funny situation. As I said, I made a bit about this. It's not funny here because I haven't expanded on it. So as I said before, I hadn't showered, I hadn't shaved. I looked disgusting. I probably smelled disgusting, but I had no energy for this. Uh, and um, I remember coming into my house in my driveway was a, a van, it was a mobile dog grooming van. And it was called the Rough Life, R-U-F-F and she booked a mani-pedi spa treatment for the dog while I'm sitting in this chair up here. I just <laughs> thought it was hysterical. You know, so I had a whole routine about that. Yeah, you spent $150 on a blueberry facial and a nose and poor moisturizer. I said, why? You know, what does he need this for? This dog smells other dog's butts and looks uh, looks off the street. I need that $150 blueberry facial, you know, whatever. I think I need a husband rescue, you know, so. So, uh, yeah, so <laughs> certain things like that we try to make into humor. I remember, well, because I said several weeks passed by on my hair. I look, you know, I'm bald on top of my hair. I look like Albert Einstein's on the side. And my wife said, great news, Bruce. I went online, and now I know how to cut hair. I watch YouTube videos. And so I ordered this hair cutting system. And I had a lot of anxiety during this whole process of get being sick with COVID. But I never felt more anxious when my wife took out the shears and, and wanted to give me a haircut. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But um, again, you try and get through it with as much humor as possible. I used the joke. I said, you know, you know, because we were in lockdown and quarantine, you know, intimacy was not a factor You know, Nobody wanted to get close to each other. And uh, to keep the passion alive, my wife cut up one of her black lace Victoria's Secret bras and made masks <laughs> out of them. Yeah, And I say, thankfully, she's a double D or else she would have never fit over my nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so. Well, like I said, yeah, it, it, again, these are the little things that you try to make funny. Or I remember when I, because um, um, I, again, I was sick and I, I would go to regular visits to my doctor and he would take blood. And anybody who's had this disease, for the most part, when they get their blood results back, they all seem to be normal which is very baffling to the doctors. But he also did my antibody levels. And at the time, my antibody levels were 7.1. And normal was obviously 1.4 or below zero, and uh, usually below zero. And he said to me, this is the highest antibodies I've seen at this point. And so I, 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 was, at the, I was probably the sexiest man in New York City because I had the highest <laughs> antibody levels. Maybe Playboy was going to do a spread on me or something. Maybe spread is not the right word over here, but you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and uh, I was like the Ron Jeremy of antibodies. Yeah. So it, it was, again, I was fortunate enough that now it's 15 months later. I still am symptomatic. Um, I went recently to a, a long hauler's clinic, Mount Sinai Hospital, in New York City. I went there with my son because my son has presented symptoms as well as a long hauler. And it was very weird. Almost at the year anniversary of both of us being sick, our symptoms exacerbated and we got we felt sicker. Mm. Don't know why, nobody can predict it. Now it's been several weeks after that. I still have the symptoms, but nowhere near what they were back when I back in March. So we both made an appointment for the Long Haulers Clinic in Mount Sinai. So when I called up for the appointment, it was probably April. And I said, okay, I'd like to get put on a appointment. Here's my situation. They said, fine, we'll get you into the system. We'll get you an appointment. The earliest we can see you is October. I said, wait a second, October, it's now April. Let me do the math. October is 10th month. April is the third month. That's fourth month. That's six months from now. That's the earliest you can see me. I said, either you guys are very optimistic that the symptoms are going to go away. I'm going to cancel the appointment. Or you're very pessimistic that I'm going to have the symptoms still. I'm going to keep the appointment. So I was like, oh, my gosh, what what good is this going to do me? But thankfully, after a few weeks later, maybe a month later, they called me up and said, Bruce, we added some staff. How would you like to come in next Friday? So we came in. But I really didn't expect anything special out of this because they're, they're just as baffled as anybody else. I came in and I explained my situation, my son too. What are the symptoms? What have you done? And they said, okay, you should probably see a pulmonologist. Already did that. You should see an internist. Already did that. But my son developed something that it's a there's a new thing going around. They call it COVID stomach. Where people are having stomach and esophageal problems. And my son developed that and insomnia. Those are his two biggest things. And he'd be at night he'd be choking and they think it was due to some stomach issue, like acid, not acid reflux, but something. They can't even understand what it is. They don't even know. And I don't fault the doctors on this because as a doctor, what are you? You're you're like a, a detective, if you come in with a stomach ache, okay, here's the protocol used for somebody with a stomach ache. If you come in with a headache, here's the protocol for somebody with a headache. But those protocols are in the normal conditions. These aren't normal conditions. So mm-hmm. it was frustrating, not only for the medical community, but for us as patients as well. So my son went through a battery of tests. He, he's an athlete, my son. He's a competitive handball player. He's also competitive. Our, our, Football player. He does uh, a certain type of football leagues. He's in uh, t- uh, flag football. So as somebody like him who's used to being very active, he had to take a step back. He had to change his diet because certain things in the diet were making life worse for him. And even I had to take a step back in some of the things I did. But I, you know, at the same point, we're still pushing forward. We're doing pretty well compared to a lot of other long haulers. I'm sure you folks have know about heard some horror stories about some of the long haulers out there. Uh, who are athletes who now can't even walk from their bedroom to the bathroom, or people who have kidney failure, liver failure, people, I have a physician friends in town, young people having to go on the rest of their lives, people having strokes, or cardiovascular issues, or memory issues, and you can go on and on and on. It's a really, it's sad. And I know you were talking when I first came in. There was just an article recently in my local paper here, talking about people who are long haulers and the concern that they have, will these symptoms ever disappear?
2: Yeah.
0: And nobody can give an answer to that. And they really can't. And it's frustrating, as I said before, for the medical community because they want answers. And also for us as patients, we want answers. And the best they can say is do the best you can. You know, everything. Thankfully, my day-to-day stuff is pretty good. And I go. I loop back to the uh, mental side of this with the comedy. I think comedy has helped me so much because now we, we've been stuck in the house and there hasn't been any live comedy till recently where I was able to get on Zoom shows and other shows and perform. Plus I was able to take some writing classes and just you know, push my writing a little bit more. I've learned a little bit about um, doing some self-promotion and Facebook, which I've never done before. I, I built a website, and trying to get myself ready for when times are normal again. Maybe I'll be prepared to really hit the hit the you know the ground running. I'm actually I'm doing my first live show uh, on July 17th. I was supposed to do one last week, but it got canceled last minute. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going live. And uh, but at the same point, I built up a nice resume of Zoom comedy and StreamYard and other things, and I built a network of people all over the world. It would have never allowed me to meet people from China, Japan, um, the UK, Scotland, India, Israel, Canada. You can go on and on and on in different countries and perform with these people and meet these people and become friends with these people. And if things ever get normal again, and I do traveling and I go to some of these sites, I have friends there who can possibly get me on shows as if they came to me, I can possibly get them on shows. There is a positive to all this negative negativity, but mm-hmm. the small price compared to the big picture where we'd actually hopefully get back to whatever normalcy is. And there was a struggle with me too. Uh, as I mentioned, I had high antibodies. Well, and my antibodies at one point peaked at 90. And so I went to my doctor and I said, "Doc, ah, do I need the vaccination? And his first response to me was, you know, Bruce, there's nothing like having your own antibodies. Your body, there's a foreign body in there, your body reacts to that and makes the antibodies. And he said, some of the concerns with the antibodies don't last. But my <laughs> antibodies have lasted from day one till now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still pretty high. So he said, maybe you should hold off on getting the vaccine.
1: Oh.
0: All right. So I held off a few weeks and my wife got it, my mother-in-law got it, my family got it. And and friends got it, and I came to one point, point. I said, what do I do now? How long do I hold off? Uh, do we know how long my, my antibodies will last? Do they know how long the antibodies will last after you get the vaccination? They'll be talking about boosters in six months or three months, whatever the time is. And uh, so I didn't know, and that's another quandary I had. I, I was afraid if I got the vaccination, would it make me sicker?
2: Yeah.
0: But as you read the reports, you know, you take the vaccination, or I had, I had symptoms, but I already had those symptoms. I lived those symptoms every day. So the people that were complaining they had symptoms and really, you know, for two, three days, hey, this is me for a year already, or 14 months. So I, I feel bad for you for the two or three days you had it. So my doctor finally said, I think you should take the vaccination, but I want you to take the Pfizer. Mm-hmm. So I took the Pfizer, first time, first shot, was not no problem. Second, second vaccination, I was so sick for three days. I felt I had COVID again. And of course I was angry, I was scared. Oh my God, is this gonna start this whole process over again? But by the third day, the symptoms started to dissipate from pre-inoculation to post-inoculation. But I still had the other you know, they, they hadn't gone away. And one of the concerns I had was my tracheal constriction. And I used to perform a lot, I still perform a lot on Zoom. And some of my friends were saying, "Bruce, are, are you are you gasping for air at all?" Uh, I said, "Sometimes my trachea constricts, and I, I just have to step back a little bit." As you can tell, I talk fast—that's the New Yorker in me. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I don't come up for air, maybe. But uh, I must admit that I'm I'm not as bad as I was several months ago. But I still, mm-hmm. I'm still—it's the gift that keeps on giving, as I say. But I, I maintain that comedy has really helped me a lot. And all, as I said, I've also, because of the comedy, not only performing, but also meeting great people. Like I would have never met you folks if it wasn't for this. And mm-hmm. I appreciate the opportunity to being here and, you know, sort of telling my story and, you know, we all have a story. And uh, it's just interesting to, you know, to have an opportunity to talk about these things. And I, I've been on several podcasts and, you know, not only talking about comedy and COVID, but other things. And I just find it fascinating that what I have, make a difference in somebody. And uh, yeah, and so, so, I, so I continue to do my comedy, I'm very busy. I call it comedy busy. And I'm on almost every day doing something. As I said, I normally wouldn't have got to that point. And uh, my comedy ride has been very interesting because uh, as I said, I got started later on. As I mentioned earlier, I'm 65 years old. So I kind of got serious in comedy, maybe age 63. And I was worried as a as an older comedian, would I be accepted into the comedy, you know, the comedy world? Because nowadays, everything seems to be, um, everybody seems to be put in a different different classification. And would I be classified as old? And would would young people want to see me? And I remember I'm talking to somebody who's very influential in New York City and comedy, and he just told me, he said, Bruce, it doesn't matter how old you are, are you relatable? And are you funny if you're that? And mainly the funny part, because funny is funny. If you can make people laugh, it doesn't mean if you're 80 years old or you're 20 years old. You know, If you can get out there and do your thing and do the writing and be strong at it and perfect your sets, um, the rest will fall, fall into place. And I've been fortunate with that. I've met octogenarian comedians who've been successful. I've met kids who are 13 years old who and everybody has their unique perspective you know, your unique selling point. What's my unique selling point? Now you look back at Rodney Dangerfield. He's yeah. to say, I get no respect. That was his thing. That was, you can talk, see Rodney, he gets no respect to so all of his jokes. Basically means he's a poor schmuck. Nothing ever works out right for him. Me, I tend to be the old and nice guy who tries his best, but sometimes things don't always work out in my favor either. Uh, my style tends to be Rodney-esque in, in the way I deliver, punchlines, I like short, quick, fast jokes, but I do have stories that I tell that have the same format within there. And again, talking about COVID and comedy, that allowed me to experiment on how I do my comedy. And I've learned different techniques of writing. Uh, when I first learned it was something called premise, which is the idea, the setup and a punchline, okay? And uh, that's the standard formula for comedy for a lot of people. But now there's story-based comedy which has a lot of the same formats in there. But instead of just saying, saying one joke, I may have a series of jokes within something. For example, if I say, when well, we just purchased a new dog, it's a designer dog. All right. And then <laughs> eight or 10 jokes within that designer dog part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk about, about how my wife has designer dog, she $6,000 on the book, and she carries around a Gucci handbag. <laughs> Except the gucci handbag only cost three thousand dollars and it doesn't need to be walked six times a day but, <laughs> but then I, I go from there and i talk about how can you spend so much money on that oh he has his he has his kennel club papers so i have a series of jokes within that and then i talked about you know what what it meant to actually buy a dog through a breeder and how the breeder asked us 100 questions want to know our financial arrangements want to know if, uh, arrest records you know, am I, am I buying a dog? Am I being interviewed for a job with the CIA? <laughs> and then you just keep going on and on. And then, what, again, what comedy is, um, again, is, you know, taking something that seems normal but finding the absurdity in it. Where you expect me to go left, I go right. And it could be something as simple as, as I said before, where you just expect something to be normal and it just doesn't turn out to be normal. And a good comedian could figure that out in as little words as possible. Because you know, if you're listening to a comedy, or a comedian, and he's constantly going on and on and on a long setup, you may get distracted and bored. Mm -hmm. But the story can be interesting. So then I also learned to write story-based comedy. I was fortunate enough to get on several shows that were theme-based. For example, uh, I'll use Valentine's Day or (laughs) St. Patrick's Day or there was a Western-themed show. And I kind of forced myself to write differently story-based comedy based on personal experiences. For example, the Western-based one, it brought me back to a time when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And I used to go away in the summertime to what we call bungalow colonies, which were cabins in the woods, basically crappy cabins. But, you know, you open the front door, you're at the back door, everything was so cheap. But I went away with my grandparents mainly my grandmother, but it was a different time back then. you vote in the summertime, you'd kind of be free. And we boarded a place called Cimarron City, which is a the only Western theme park up on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. One of those things where people would, the stagecoaches, these guys would be dressed up as cowboys and Indians. And you'd see the guy fall off the roof onto a mattress, or all the phony stagecoach robberies. So anyway, I, I wrote a theme-based story that had jokes in it on that Western theme. In fact, I I, I put it out as a blog on my website, and uh, I performed it, and I got good reviews on it. Was it a hysterical sense? In other words, it was a, what, every five seconds, was it a joke happening? No, but it was an endearing story that had a lot of good humor. So, again, with the comedy, you, there's a lot of different ways of approaching it. You can approach it as a story-based situation where people gravitate to it and get good feelings out of it and get the smile. And then you lace in good, hopefully, punchline from there to elevate it. If you can do that, you know, that's a comedic genius. I'm not at that stage yet, but I've written things for, let's say, uh, as I said, Valentine's Day, I talked about how my wife and I first met. And... Uh, one of the funny things about my wife and I first meeting is that, you know, when you first meet somebody, you go on a date, especially the blind date. Um, one of the things that always comes out is and I'm not big on this. so said, what's your sign? You know, so <laughs> and my first sign was uh, proceed with caution. No, no, no but I, I said, I understand what she was saying. So I said, Aquarius. And she said, unbelievable. I'm Aquarius too. We're both water babies. I said, I didn't know what that meant, but it's okay. Uh, was I drowning in this date? Or am I going to swim? You're throw me the life life preserver. So she said, You know, I have a story, a funny story. My wife said that I'm born on January 27th, and my sister is born on January 28th. But we always celebrated our birthdays on January 28th. I'm sorry, my sister's born on January 29th. Um, so I'm 27, she's, my sister's the 29th, but we always celebrated on the 28th. My mother always did that because it seemed to me this way nobody felt that they were slighted. Um, She said to me, Bruce, when's your birthday? I said January 28th. (laughs) And she didn't believe me. So this was the first time on a first date I had to take my wallet out twice to prove that I was born on January 28th with my, 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 my driver's license and also to pay for the date. I actually am born on January 28th. So what are the chances of that?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So I tell a story about that, about how now when we have our birthdays. I have a threesome all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe not the threesome that I envisioned when I was a young man, but uh, the idea is that. And, and then I, I gravitate to other stuff talking about, one of the first times that we did a, a weekend birthday celebration and how we went skiing. And her family is a family of skiers, and I'm not a skier. If you put me on the top of the mountain, I'm not a thrill, thrill seeker. So there's a whole story that has punchlines in there about my trepidation and angst and, and feelings of being scared around skiing and this whole birthday weekend. So that's how the story develops. And as I said before, if you can make it interesting, gripping and funny, you certainly done, certainly did your job. And that story probably goes about seven or eight minutes. So you have, if you do a story for seven, eight minutes and you're not hooking the, the audience in because of laughter or, or, or the base of the story, that could be an issue. But the neat thing about when you develop something like this is that if I get on stage, and somebody just says, uh, there's always, if you've been to comedy clubs, the MC or host will always say, oh, is anybody having a birthday? Because the MC's job is to walk the crowd, keep them into the mood, and get them to the point where they're into the show. So oftentimes an MC may say, is anybody having a birthday? Is anybody having an anniversary? Whatever it may be, job promotion, whatever, just get married, get engaged. So if somebody comes back and says, oh, yeah, I'm on a blind first date with this guy, I can get on stage and be very relative, you know, in the sense I can get on. Tell you, let me tell you about the first time that I met my wife. And now I have an enduring story that has punchlines to it. So I almost look like a genius because I can come out and riff with the audience in different subjects. Well, let me tell you, oh, skiing. Anybody like to ski here? Let me tell you about the first time I went skiing. Or I had a St. Patty's Day thing. And... Uh, Oftentimes, when you go to these clubs, somebody must say, as I said before, anybody having a birthday? And somebody will raise their hand. And a lot of times, the, the MC will, will refer to that person, Hey, Sally has a birthday. Everybody give her a hand. Sally, fantastic. Congratulations. So now, maybe when it's my turn to get on stage, I can get on stage if I want to. If I want to, depending how much time I have, I can say, Oh, Sally, congratulations on your birthday. Sally, you know, um, you know, Are you Irish, Sally? Uh, She says, no, but I want to tell you a story about Irish people and how they celebrate their birthdays differently than Americans do. And that was all based off of the fact that I wrote this bit about St. Paddy's Day, and there's a different way that Irish people celebrate their birthdays than Americans. And there's a funny story I have, and it has some punchlines in there. And uh, so, again, it's a way for for me to sort of hook into the audience and the audience hook into me, because when you're on stage, you have to be – Basically, the audience has to trust you and believe you. Mm-hmm. You want to be—you don't want to be condescending to the audience. You want to be supportive. They, you want them to support you just as much as they want to. You want them to—you want to support them, because That's without true. them, you're nothing. Right. This, but again, some com- comedians have different styles where they are insulting. They, they like to work with the audience, <laughs> put down people. That's not my stuff. Hey, I don't judge anybody's comedy. Um, I know what I think works for me. I try to be the nice guy on stage. And I remember one time I was at a club out in Long Island, famous club called Governors, probably the premier club in Long Island. And uh, there's two different rooms there. They have what they call the little room and they have the main room. The main room obviously is where your headliners, but the little room has headliners too, but the little room has people like me who are more newbies performing there. And oftentimes you have to bring people, they're called broomer shows because you have to develop a following. When you go to the headliners, they have their own following. So I mentioned earlier I was in a serious car accident. I had a bad spinal injury. I, I, I use a cane. Um and uh and I was in the green room. The green room is the room where the comedians hang out when they're not performing. And uh this screen room sort of melded into both the big room and the small room. And so one of the headliners from the big room came out, was hanging out in, in, in where I was, and he saw me with the cane. And he said, He introduced himself. I introduced myself. He said, What's the cane for? Uh, I explained, He said, Do you use it as a prop in your comedy? And I said, No, I had a bad car accident, a spinal injury. He said, You should use it as a prop. And this is this is guy's a headline. I said, hmm, let me think about this. So I was up next to come onto the stage. And uh then the guy introduced me, oh, coming to the stage next. The very funny guy with Lipsky. And so I walk slowly onto the stage with the cane. My back is to the audience, and I slowly put the cane in the corner of the stage. I slowly turn around, I get to the mic, and I stare at the crowd for a second. And I don't know how I even thought of this. I said, Don't mind the cane. I'm only using it till I settle my lawsuit. <laughs> and the crowd started cracking up. And the guy in the back of the room told me this had his thumbs up and he was laughing because again, that first hook with the people, part of me was a little scared to do that because if I came across looking as an idiot because I had this, pretending I had a cane, what would they think of me? But I definitely didn't need the cane. I, I used the cane, it's not like a prop. And I said, holy cow, that, that, that actually went over pretty well. I don't use it in every show, but I, I, use, it, I use it more often than not. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and again, again, hooking into the audience. And then I may talk about then getting old, what it's like to get old. And I have a whole routine on that. And then I may talk about my parents, my wife, whatever it may be. And depending on where you, you are and who you are in the comedy world, you get five minutes, you can get seven minutes, you can get longer depending on who's on the show, you know, and how they like you or want you. Um I had situations where I remember I had one time, I got on a show that was called My Father's Place, which is, this is a real classy place. It used to be back in the 60s and 70s where all, a lot of acts started over there, a lot of singers, performers, and they closed for a while and they reopened. I was fortunate to do comedy there right after they reopened. And I remember I was I was the opening act in the second half of the show. And the person who, uh, MC said, you got seven to eight minutes. So I'm on the stage and I'm doing my thing in about seven and a half minutes about to, st- to basically finish. And I look over into the corner and I see the MCs put his hands to sit, say, basically saying, stay out there, stay out there. Because the comedian that's supposed to follow me was nowhere in sight. He was at the bar, I think. Mm. And so, now I had to pull stuff out of my back pocket. You know, I had been working on a new bit, and so I, I put it out there, and I wound up doing like 11 or 12 minutes, the longest I ever did. And I felt validated as a comedian that night. Mm-hmm. One other thing with my bucket list in comedy was, so as I told you, I was a big Rodney Dangerfield fan, and I've actually seen him live at his place, Dangerfield's, which is on 61st Street in New York City, 1st Avenue. And uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic, they closed down. But as I mentioned before, my bucket list was to get on there and perform on Dangerfield stage. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that several times. And as I said before, I felt validated as a comedian in certain places. Another place I felt validated as a comedian was a place called the Comic Strip Live, which is on the Upper East Side in New York City. Mm-hmm. That's the stage where Seinfeld got his start. And, and, and if you look at these stages, what are they? They're really planks of wood that are sticky from beer and whatever else. <laughs> and the, the dim lighting, the old paneling, but the mystique of the club is there. And mm-hmm. that was the same thing with Dangerfields. If you look at on Dangerfield Dangerfields stage, what is it? A six by eight stage? And behind you, there's a sign that says Dangerfields. But the fact that the Dangerfields sign was behind me and I had a mic in front of it, I felt like a comedian hopefully people laughed at what I had to say. But of course, you know, as a comedian or any performer, not everybody's going to like what you have to say. There are, there are tough times on stage. I mean, I've gotten on stage sometimes. I followed a headliner, and this guy had people laughing for 20 minutes and 25 minutes, and now I'm getting on stage, and it's like, okay, another thing about my mother-in-law. You know, sometimes it doesn't <laughs> work so well. Uh, but that's the whole idea. You've got to pay your dues. I am I remember getting on at 12:15 at night on Dangerfields after following this headliner. The, the the MC was so tired and burnt out. He says, "Coming to the stage now is Brian Lipsky," and the and the headliner <laughs> said, "It's Bruce." Yeah. So you had those painful nights, or you know, I, I've gone to shows where the MC forgot my name completely. She gets on stage. I went. Let's bring it up for this really funny guy. I've seen him all over the city, and she didn't have a name for me. And she had to get off stage to get my name. So you, then that, right then and there, you can't trust the MC or the host. That affects the show tremendously. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it kind of puts you in a funny position. But you got to roll with it. I remember doing open yeah. mics. When you're first starting comedy, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, they encourage you to do open mics. So in the beginning, I was running around New York City at weird hours, trying to fit in with this young crowd doing open mics. And a lot of these kids, they had clicks And I'm coming in trying to break into these clicks. And some of them were high or drunk or whatever, a combination of the two. But, you know, I, I pay some of my dues. And I, I'm still paying my dues because I'm not that at the level where I have. A, I'm not a headliner. Uh, I, I feel very confident I can do 15 to 20 minutes of good comedy, maybe even more. Um, but I have to be noticed. and The Zoom has helped people notice me a little bit more. Yeah. But, but there's a thousand of me out there. But I can't worry about them because I can only worry about my comedy and my ability to entertain people. So I went on at it. And I I've taken writing classes, I've taken some private sessions, I continue to try and write as much as I can. I try to do a lot of observation. And you know, Seinfeld's very well known for his observational comedy. What's the deal with this? Or whatever. And so I try to write some observational comedy too, things that I've experienced that just don't seem right. You know? It's, it's called the ing- incongruities of life. For example, recently, um, my son asked if I can take him to, uh, I picked him up. He had a medical point, whatever. I picked him up, and he said, can you do me a favor? I'm hungry. Can we go to McDonald's? Can we go through the drive through there? I'm not a fast food eater, but he wants to McDonald's. That's no problem. So we get to the fast He orders whatever sandwich, and we get to the window, and the person who's been at the window real apologetically said, I'm really sorry, sir. I have a problem. Well, I said, what's the problem? We've run out of artisan buns. And I looked at him, This is I, I started cracking up because you look at McDonald's who usually sells you a, uh, a a sesame seed bun or a plain bun. Now this guy was so apologetic because their artisan bun which is some special bun was out of stock. I was expecting maybe the, the sous chef with the baker to come out or the manager or, or uh, uh, I have a formal written apology. But it was just, you go to you go to Panera Bread to get an artisan bun. You don't go to McDonald's necessarily. Uh, but I just found it so funny uh, <laughs> his seriousness, and I, I wrote a bit about it. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and it, it, here's where I get some of my humor. Well, one other time I was driving on the Long Island Expressway, which is the main road in, uh, when you go from New York City to Long Island, and it, it's, it's a, a three lane highway, sometimes four, you know, the HLV lane. And it's a lot of traffic. And I was passing by, and I don't know where you folks are. Do you have Kohl's, Kohl's department stores?
1: Yeah, um, at least in uh, where I'm in California, we do. Okay. Um, Not so much in um, Canada that I've seen. Right, Michaela? Um,
0: Yeah. So anyway, Um, Kohl's is known for the very good store. You get good prices and things. But a lot of times, if you buy $50 worth of something, they give you something called Kohl's Cash that you can use that to buy somewhere else something in the Kohl's. But next to the Kohl's department store was a a Bentley and Lamborghini dealership. And those cars sell for $300,000. And just the incongruity of having a Kohl's with their parking lot people, with their Kia's and Honda's, next to this other parking lot with the $300,000 cars, I just thought that was hysterical. And again, you may not find that hysterical. But now it's my job to put that into a bit to try and make it hysterical. And oftentimes when you get on stage as a comedian, what you think is funny is what counts. You have to make it. So hopefully the audience thinks it's funny and relatable. Mm-hmm. And, and again, here's where it comes down. People understand Cole's Cash. So now I was thinking about Bentley Bucks or Lamborghini Lira, you know. So I'm trying to say, is, you know, if you had $300,000 worth of Cole's Cash, can you buy a hubcap at the Lamborghini dealership? So is there a crossover here? Can you use that? And so I just tried writing it to that. And then again, you can get on stage and a joke and bomb. They always say writing is editing. I know, I can't give you the exact time. I think Seinfeld once said, it took him almost a year to perfect one joke, one punchline. So mm-hmm. you have punchlines of things, does it work? Does it work? Yeah. Like I, I have a, a new bit that I put together on kale because my wife is a kale kale a kale <laughs> connoisseur. And I talk about kale being the new superfood. And, you know, I talked about saying when I grew up, we didn't have superfoods. We just had food. <laughs> uh, and then I go through this whole litany of kale. And, I, I, and towards the end of this, I said, you know, for me, the new superfood for 2021 should be chipotle. But my, my son says, no, Dad, it's pronounced Chipotle. And I said, well, this is great coming from a kid who got a 40 on the Spanish regions. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, either way, whether it's pronounced Chipotle or Chipotle, I really enjoy their pork pulled gistas. <laughs> and that punchline, I wrote it that way, that I wrote it a different way. I performed it two different times, two different ways. And this way got the better laugh than the other way. The other way was that I bring my son back into it. I, I pronounce it properly and say, "I really love their pulled pork fajitas," and my son, my son will say, "Dad, it's pronounced fajistas." You know, so that to me didn't get as big a laugh as the other way. You know, so mm-hmm. it's experimental something, and maybe next week when I do the joke or the bit, it may change again. You know, I added recently, I said, you know, um, kale is a superfood. But kale is my kryptonite. A superman can leave tall buildings in a single bound. Kale can clean out your colon in a single serving. <laughs> so that was, I just added that to my bit, And that's, again, that's the whole thing. You can do it. You can have a, one joke that you can put in it anywhere. Okay, let's say somebody says you need I uh, need a 30-second joke because you'd have to kill time or whatever. I have a bunch of those. Somebody's made, somebody may be talking about food. Oh, I can talk about kale. I can talk about recently in my town, a new restaurant opening, a tiny restaurant. It's called Good Pizza. It's a good pizza. You know, I'm no marketing genius. Couldn't they think of a better name? Like maybe very good pizza or excellent pizza? You know, who's gonna settle for just good pizza? Maybe those people who like lousy lasagna or mediocre manicotti. Or- <laughs> or a crappy cannoli. (laughs) Me, I refuse to eat any food that has low self-esteem. Of course, I'm not performing (laughs) right now. I'm just telling you the basics of the joke. Mm -hmm. I wrote that, and this is actually a true story. I was driving to my mother-in-law's house one day, and a new new Italian restaurant opened up. It was called Good Pizza. And now I thought of it, this is hysterical. How can I turn this into a joke? And so, and I said, this particular joke has actually got me. Uh, I performed this on a, a, a show. Uh, Apple was doing a competition, and uh, it came down. Uh, it was a tie, and they said, "Okay, give me a 30-second joke." And I used that joke. And of course, I embellished it a little differently, and I actually won the competition. So I was. Uh, that's having those things in your back pocket is a good And I have this kale bit that actually can be two minutes, two and a half minutes. But I also have the kale bit where I can do it in a minute or 40 seconds. I can take pieces out of the chunk. A chunk is a, it's a huge piece, a bit is a smaller part, and the individual jokes obviously are part, of, are part of that. So you can break it down that way. Or I can add that to my gardening bit and suddenly I have a seven minutes set. And again, I'm not a sophisticated, high-level comedian in the sense of experience. And I have a long way to go. I'm the first one to admit it. But I'm trying to learn the proper way of doing things as much as I can. And it's not easy. (laughs) And uh, it's frustrating at times, too. Just when you think you got the joke right, you can do back-to-back shows. Or on Monday, you do a show, and they love you. On Tuesday, you do the same material. And it's like dead air. Mm -hmm. But that's the way way it goes. Same, Same thing with performers. You know, I'm sure i whoever a performer may be, Bruce Springsteen. He can get on stage one day, he can kill it on stage. People love him. Next day, he goes out to a different crowd, it ain't happening. You have to really hook them in somehow. Um, but that's that's part of being uh, a performer. How do you hook people in and keep them interested? It's a little easier, I think, if you're a musician because you have a whole song you play. Comedians, you only have you know, like a level, I like need five to seven or eight minutes, sometimes 10 minutes to do your thing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I've, I've done shows where you know if you don't get the people in that first minute oh boy you have nine more minutes to go it's a <laughs> long minutes so let me tell you I did some senior shows and I was told by the person who's running the show if you don't get them hooked on that first joke you're gonna have a very difficult time and I did it was the hardest thing I had to do and then I had other issues there because some people had medical issues uh, that that kind of some of the set as well. So it's all part, as I said, paying the dues, and I'm still paying my dues. And hopefully, as I said before, people like what I do. And, and I think it's very important when you're out there as a comedian or any performer any professional, you've got to be respectful not only to the club but to the producers, respectful for the other comedians, you've got to be respectful for the local you know, When you're given an opportunity to perform on stage, it, it's an opportunity. I've been to shows when some of the comedians weren't prepared. And I got into comedy in an interesting way. Uh, A friend of mine uh, used to do a a fundraiser for certain diseases and she'd always hire a comedian. And she hired a national headlining comedian one time and I was fortunate that he sat next to me. And we chatted and the first year we did, he was fantastic. And the next year he came back, fortunately he sat next to me again. Well, he, when he when I saw him that year, you know, he didn't seem like things were right. He got out there, supposed to do, i say 45 minutes. After 15 minutes, he got off stage, sat next to me, said, boy, this was a tough crowd. Mm-hmm. And I was angry because he got off stage. I knew he was supposed to do a lot longer on time. My friend was angry because he paid him to do a lot longer. Uh, mm-hmm. But I vowed that if I'm gonna be out there, I'll give it my best be prepared as much as possible. I may stink, certain nights, but at least I gave it my best. Yeah. I've been to shows that I said before, where comedians are, what should I talk about next? What should I talk about next? I think that disrespects the crowd, it disrespects other comedians, it disrespects the venue, it disrespects the promoters. again, my one man's humble opinion. And also, you know, when you're given a task to be out there, let's say you have five minutes, you're usually given the light at four minutes somehow you want to wrap up after that minute. Well, you're doing 20 minutes, you're giving it right at 18 minutes. You don't want to run the light. Running the light is like running a red light, you know, and basically, and that's disrespectful to the whole situation because that could cut out some other comedian's time. And I've been on some Zoom shows where people are give them seven minutes at the 10 minute mark, you know, it's still going on and the person who's running the show feels funny about cutting them off. Mm-hmm. But I've seen situations where they've people had the mic shut off on them, they'd been pulled off the stage. You know, and this this is not the you don't look good in the eyes of the, of, the, of the people there, or don't be late to a show. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Typically, we don't like you leaving the show early unless you have another gig somewhere. But always be tell front beforehand. Always always be appreciative of the spot you get. A lot of times, for one producer I, I work for. I always open up for him on the opening act. Most people don't like to be the opening act. I like the opening act. I think it's pretty cool because it's my job at this point. I'm the first comedian. I can set the tone a little bit here. Plus, honestly, I like, I don't want to say, I'm not getting it over with, but I like the idea of being first uh, second or whatever. I've been a lot of times, I've been the next to last act, and there's 12 other comedians. I think the the people are burnt out by then. But again, it's my—I like—but I'll be respectful. If he wants me to go first or last or sixth or fourth, I say thank you, perfect. He'll say, "Do you mind this?" No, not at all. I'm just so thankful I got the opportunity to perform. Mm-hmm. Any way you want. You know, tell me how much time you want me to do. Where you want me to go on? And so let's say I, I get bumped for a later slaughter or Bruce, the second act didn't show up. How about you come to come on second? No problem. Whatever you want. You, know, you got to be mature about these things, and, that, and people remember that. People remember the good stuff, and they certainly remember the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And how you, how you dress—that's that's another thing. I started going out there dressed with a sport coat, a white shirt, and a, and a tie. That was my signature. Then some friends said, "You know, for Tuesday night, you're kind of overdressed." Other friends said, "You look great." Other friends say, "You look like an insurance salesman." <laughs> But then one night on a Saturday night, I was dressed that way. My wife buys me these funny ties and uh, I had my, my shirt and the owner of the club came up to me and says, you know my name. He said, looking good tonight. So that was worth a lot right there. You mm-hmm. didn't know my name, but he saw me, he recognized me. And being recognized is so critical. It's who you know a lot. Obviously you have to have talent. But if you're recognized as that person who always shows up ready, respectful, That goes a long way, as opposed to just care. It doesn't matter, obviously. It's just like you know, you're doing the podcast here, the recordings. If I showed up at one one fifteen, how would that work? Like this guy doesn't care, and I would never do that unless, of course, there was an emergency that you couldn't couldn't help.
2: And it's that that's such a thing overarching for anywhere in life. I mean, like for teenagers who are going into their first job, show up on time for your interview, guys.
0: absolutely it it
2: really it really makes you look good if you're half an hour late for everything
1: nobody's going to appreciate that
0: exactly first impressions yeah
1: yeah and And not just that but, but like carrying that impression because um i know so many people um in my little circle that have been fired because they've been progressively late day after day after day after day so not only being early for your first interview, but being early and on time for your job day after mm-hmm. day um, is super important. Obviously life happens, but still.
2: That's yeah, exactly. super valuable in like your field of comedy and any performance. Cause if you're that guy, that's just, you know, showing up 10 minutes yeah. late, every performance, right. like nobody's gonna wanna hire you. Right, that's you wanna, something that's, that's super important in that. You
0: wanna, you wanna be remembered for the right reasons, not the wrong exactly. reasons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, see, one of the neat things about comedy is if you, if you do it in a bunch of groups of people repetitively, they kind of get to know you. Um, I used to do regularly this library show, uh, mm-hmm. and it was great. They get a lot of people, mainly senior citizens, and I have a lot of humor that talks about senior comedy. But um, one of my, my signature jokes is that I do a, a CVS joke, CVS Pharmacy, if you've all been to CVS, you know when you buy a, a 99 cent pack of Tums, you get this four foot receipt. And uh and most of these people, if you ever see these, these CVS receipts, it's crazy. So I what I did was I, I have this whole receipt joke, and it works great with senior citizens because they've all been to CVS. <laughs> and I'm known for that as my closing thing. When I pull out this, I, I tape together like I have like 12 feet of receipt. And I'm pulling it out of my pocket, like, a, like one of those magicians pull out handkerchiefs. <laughs> and I talk about this whole thing and they love it. And oftentimes if I do different, the same, it's the same library, but we do different venues because the library was under construction. I remember I hadn't done the library in a couple of months and I came back and I was opening the act there and in front row before the show started, I saw some people were talking and said, yeah, that's the CVS guy. <laughs> Yeah, so I was memorable, Yeah, it was memorable. And that made me feel really good because, hey, they remembered who I was. um, So it's neat. Again, it's all about being memorable and hopefully being funny. And uh, I know the first time I ever, I told you I took this class at Stand Up University, which I said was fabulous. And the first time, when you take the class, it's like five weeks and the sixth week, you actually do a, a, a graduation show all the stuff you worked on. And you, you're busting your butt to get up there and do everything. So I remember uh, I, had, I had 30-something people showed up with my friends and family. And the place held about 150 people, 175 people. So it was great, it was packed. And now coming to the stage for the first time, a very funny guy, Bruce Lipsky, okay, fantastic. I'm out there with my my um, my sport coat, my white shirt, I had a bow tie on, and, uh, and I thought I was looking good. Okay, I started telling my jokes and all of a sudden I have a joke about my wife shopping that every time I send her to the store, I'll give her a list, but she never gets it right. I say I want regular orange juice, she gets orange juice with pulp. I say I want creamy peanut butter, she gets chunky style. But I I blanked out on the word peanut butter. And, you know, you practice this stuff, you practice it. And I got on stage and it was like, It was like three seconds, but that three seconds felt like 10 minutes. Nobody knew that, that I kind of didn't flub the line, but I forgot the line. But Mm -hmm. I was able to reel it in and remember the line and proceeded from there. But that was so scary because, you know, you work so hard and you're basically naked on stage at this point. And every eye is staring at you. And those two or three seconds that you didn't say anything, man... Unplanned, because there's times on stage where it's good to be silent. Because not all comedy is is uh, is um, through words. Comedy could be through facial expressions, pauses, proper pauses. You know, when you do comedy, you tell jokes. A really good comedian has something called tags on their comedy. You can tell a joke and it's very funny, and then you tag it with another joke right away, with the same subject. Uh, and then you can do more tags and more tags There's some really fabulous comedians. Just keep tagging and tagging, and it's really hysterical. I have I have jokes that have tags on it as well. But what I'm saying is that sometimes silence or just a facial expression is just as powerful as a funny punchline. And uh, and as I said, you, if you observe comedians, some comedians are like that. Just their facial expressions you can crack up. Robin Williams, you know, was amazing. You know, uh, he can do just different things with facial expressions as well and just move body movement. Look at Sebastian Maniscalco who's one of the top comedians now. Very Obviously very funny but he has this whole look about him, a persona, and his facial expressions and his body movement and body language that sells the joke. You know, if I did his material and got out there and didn't do that body language and things like that I'd bomb he goes out there and that's him just like if somebody tried doing my comedy maybe they wouldn't do it the same way maybe they do it better i don't know but but you know i have a certain way of doing my stuff sometimes i have a stare here and there i get to the audience or i put my hands up in the air or i put my hands or have that look i put to the side of the front or or point to the audience somehow bring the audience into it you know i talk about getting old uh, I, I compare myself to a 56 rusted old Buick. And some people may be, I said, I may find a young person in the crowd over there. I say, I don't know if you're laughing at me or with me, but mm-hmm. 20 years from now, you're going to look in the mirror, you're going to look like a rusted old Prius. So <laughs> you know, take it in now. Or I'll say, I just turned 65, and I got some young people in the front there, and she just had of 40th birthday. I said, I'll say, take it in now. Look at me, because in 20 years, guess what? You know, this is what you got to look forward to. Again, making it personable, hopefully making it funny and relatable. That's that's the comedy part. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's 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 who I am, and this is where I'm coming yeah. from. And uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Or I need you keep going, I'm yours.
2: Yeah. Um. I think in your talking, like I kind of just was like, okay, he's answering the questions that I have. I'm just going to let him answer the questions. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah, you kind of answered questions that I that I was going to ask, so that was like really great to listen to. Um, I gotta see if I have any questions that you didn't already answer. Bree, do you have any questions for him?
1: It's the same thing for me. I mean, you've been up and, up and, up and, up and, up and I could listen to you talk for hours. I mean, you
0: Thank you, I appreciate it. much appreciated. Um, I, I'm not short sure on words, but I, I, I want to I make it entertaining. I want to make it relevant. It's
1: a piece yeah. of your time to talk to us today.
0: Oh, um, what, an honor, through sure, my honor. Yeah. As I, I said, said sorry. I
2: have uh, one more question for you. It's kind of a. Uh, yeah, I guess. I could, uh, Closing sort of question, unless Brie has anything else she wants to add. Um, what, because tying the COVID thing back to the comedy thing, what is something, I don't know, a joke or something, you know, comedic or just some words of um, hope, I guess, that you would say to anybody who is, you know, got long COVID or has COVID or is just really struggling through this time. Is there anything that you, you know, would want to say to somebody like that?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I I think, you know, certainly understanding your symptoms is very important and making sure that you've seen what you, making sure you get the right medical treatment. If there's, you know, I think it's very important to follow up on that, but you also have to be your own advocate Mm -hmm. and make sure you take care of your health as much as possible. And, uh, you know, COVID is one of these incipient diseases where it, it it takes no prisoners. There's no there's no f- formula here. You could be healthy, you could be sickly, you could be thin, mm-hmm. fat, white, black, or, or whatever. Uh, it takes no prisoners. I think it's important to um, practice good health because that's only going to be in your favor, especially if you've had the disease. I think it's very important to be active within your own means. I think physical, physical exercise exertion is very, very important. I also think that, uh, you know, looking at and hopefully finding other people that have similar issues is important I sort of have a network to follow on and uh, not to commiserate with, but just to have each other's support. And if oh, anybody yeah. wants to look, look, look me up on Facebook, it's Bruce Lipsky Comedy. I'm happy to. Yeah, we, can,
2: uh, we can add a link to that in the bio. Right, the- and, my, and my
0: website is also brucecomedy.com. I'll if you send me a note, I will answer it. Uh, mm-hmm. I can help somebody out. But again, having somebody as an advocate is very important. Um, and yeah. uh, somebody Which- you feel is on your side because it's a very frustrating disease. My life ain't perfect; it's far from it. And sometimes I get so down on myself because, gosh. You know, I felt good yesterday. Why do I have such a massive headache and nausea? Why do I have the dry heat today? Why yeah. do I have trachea constriction? There were some nights, honestly, I was scared to go to bed because I'd get this trachea constriction. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, then there, were, there were nights I'd be sitting up trying to sleep. And because I told you I was in that bad accident years ago, I had spinal issues. If I sleep sitting up, my neck freezes on me because so mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find a comfortable spot. And I spent weeks like that and then frustration. So again, don't take it on alone. That's very important. That's probably the best thing I can say.
2: Mm-hmm. Having people is so important.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, try, even if they slow steps, try and feel that you're getting a little bit ahead each day. You're gonna have two steps forward, one step back sometimes. I was, so, I was down on myself several months ago, as I mentioned, because I was feeling relatively okay. Maybe this is my new normal. All right, I can almost accept that. But then, for those six weeks or so, I felt I was back in day one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What the hell's going on over here? Yeah, so, and then uh, again, this is a mystery here, and it's it's a frustrating, it's a scary one too. And certainly, keep keep the social distancing and the mask. I don't care what anybody says. Still, keep prudent on this. Wash the hands. Will it make a difference? I don't know. I'm hoping it will, um, but you know, I'm slowly loosening it up a little bit. But I go into a store; I still wear my mask. Um, with certain friends, I don't. If I'm walking the dog, I may not wear the mask, but still, it's the end of the day. I always have the mask with me and have the hand sanitizer, and hopefully that makes a difference in the long run. And maybe there'll be um, it'll go away this eventually. Herd mentality. I don't know. But if you have the symptoms, you know, try and treat the symptoms as best you can. And, uh, and just, as I said, have an ally. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to help anybody be there in ally if necessary. I don't have the answers necessarily, but I may have a perspective on things that may be a little different than you've heard before.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. If yeah.
2: you want to send me your um, email and the Facebook link, Sure. I can link those in the bio of our podcast. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and like everything you're saying about having having people there for you, it it is super important cuz covid is like you don't even have to have covid at this point. You just have to like exist in the world today and it is isolating just because of covid. Yeah. Um so it like whether or not you have covid or long covid or you're just existing in the world today. Like yeah there
0: for yeah. like mm-hmm. that's you know? a great point that's a fabulous point i mentioned earlier covid is not just about the people who are ill
2: it's everybody
0: it's the families it's the friends it's uh, the coworkers uh, just in general look how everybody's life work-wise has been affected i you know, said so i'm retired a long time i'm not affected the way other people are look at people look at even people who are professional comedians professional actors professional or, um uh performers in any event how their life was totally turned upside down
2: mm-hmm.
0: or anybody who depended on having to go out in the real world and earn a living their life has been turned around not everybody yeah. can work from home and not everybody wants to work from home and, it's, and especially as artists you know you're trying how do you reinvent yourself how do you pay your bills right you know, mm-hmm well let's face it and it's good to get government substance uh, you know the governments help you subsidize things but people don't want most people don't want to be that way yeah they want to be out and doing their thing thankfully things are opening up a lot more and i have a lot of friends who are out there you know getting on stage and you feel bad for the clubs because what how do they make money you have to put rear ends in the seats mm-hmm. uh, people- now wanting to go back to the clubs at 50%, 60%, 70%, 100%. So, And then you look at down the trickle-down effect, the waiters, the waitresses, the the boss staff, the the cooks. I mean, you know all this stuff. It's just that this whole trickle-down effect has been tough on everybody.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, I don't have all the answers, but I I have some experience. And if I can share my experiences again here, I'm happy to do that Um, uh, any other time. Yes. This has been fabulous. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it's been great having you. It's always great to have people who just know how to talk. <laughs> yeah, uh, for
1: sure. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Instead yeah. of you being the dentist trying to pull teeth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
1: well, the funny thing is I'm actually going to school for dentistry. So.
0: Oh, really? That's a, yeah. Um, uh, is year,
1: California
0: or is this a, 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 a Canada? I don't know. Is yeah, it Brielle so, talking or is Michaela
1: yeah, talking? Yeah, right? that's Brielle uh, talking. Okay, yeah, got you. Yeah, so, um, really sitting to be a dental assistant, so, um, it's well, funny
0: you that know, you mentioned congratulations. that. Congratulations, yes. I'll be going to my dentist on Monday. I'll mention the fact I got somebody's fabulous. She's in California. When she's ready, hire her.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely consider it. I mean, New York uh, has always been a, um, but... uh,
0: funny. Yeah, well, great. As I said, this has been fabulous. As I said, I'm honored and humbled to be part of this. And uh, as I said, anything I can help you with, and your your your, your loyal audience, I'm I'm there for you. Yeah. Now, this goes out, stays on anchor. Does this get? Uh, does it, is this something I can get a copy of and put on my website?
2: Yeah. So. Um- it's available across multiple platforms. Anchor puts it on different platforms. We do have it on Spotify. So that's kind of been the main one that I've been working with. I can send you um, just a general link to all of the Anchor ones and one to Spotify if you'd like. Right,
0: Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
2: I'll do that once it's uploaded. Yeah. That's great, great. It's, been, it's been really great having you on. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, if you ever want to be on again in the future, you're more than welcome. Absolutely. Um, yeah That's so we cool. always awkwardly wrap it up just by saying bye yeah okay okay for more than that right yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. exactly all right. All right.
2: Thank, thank you so much for listening and, uh, and we will be recording again yeah. at some point in the future have a great one all right yeah thank you guys
0: bye. bye-bye now bye-bye bye